Years ago, I heard this story, and I don't know if it's actually true or if it's one of those homily help stories that's just like too perfect for a homily, but um, in any case, it's helpful. Um, supposedly, there was a soldier who, uh, well, the mother of the soldier was, received a message that her son had been killed in action, and uh, it was actually a mistake. Um, it was this, a soldier with the same name as her son, and the message got sent to her instead. And so her son's name, the soldier's been killed in action, we regret to inform you. And she goes through this grieving um, for days uh, of her son being killed. And it just so happened that her, her son, who had actually not been killed, um, got leave to go home and was going to surprise her. <laughs> so hadn't told her, hadn't talked to her for a little while and was going to knock on the door and be like, hey, I'm home. And so this happens and she opens the door and there is her son alive. And she's already gone through days of grieving his death. And her first response was to close the door. And she says, give me 10 minutes. Um, because it's just so overwhelmingly good. You know, it's not because um, it's bad that she can't handle it. It's because it's too good. And like her heart can't handle what's going on right now, the feelings, the emotions. It's like too good to accept it at the moment. She has to give herself a little, little bit of time. Um, I heard this story in, in reference to purgatory, that there's the, the old saying that the, the gates of purgatory are locked from the inside because, and the fires of purgatory are lit by the love of God. It, it's God's goodness that's so good that we're not ready to go into heaven yet. Like the, the, those of us who have not been purified, have not been opened up all the way to God's love yet and prefer to kind of keep God at arm's length, um, can't accept this overwhelming love, this good news. So we kind of, we're like, not yet. Give me 10 minutes, you know. Um, it's just an analogy. It's not a doctrinal statement. I'm not saying anything about purgatory there. But it's, it's true, though, that you look at the Old Testament as it moves towards the revelation of the New Testament. Yahweh, God, who claims this people for his own and chooses them, says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Even if you can't be faithful, I will be faithful to you. And shepherds these people who are not faithful. They fall away, they constantly sin, they go after other gods. And yet God is faithful to them. And gradually they learn his goodness. Um, there's all sorts of shows of force, obviously. The, the parting of the Red Sea and Elijah slaying the prophets of Baal in, in the book of Kings. Um, where God is manifestly powerful and just and present in a way that the other gods are not. He's like more real than the other gods. And he's merciful. He's slow to anger. Like in the story of Abraham pleading for Sodom. Lord, if there's even 50 people in Sodom that are decent human beings, will you not, you know, destroy the city? He says, yeah, sure. And that uh, Lauren read very well. Like that's kind of like water torture uh, of like, what about 45 people? What about 40 people? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God's like, yes, okay, for the 10, I won't, I won't destroy the city. You know, his kindness, it's like, um, we're not fully aware of just how much God actually loves us. And God doesn't want to destroy us. Isn't angry. Well, he's angry at our sin, but not in the way that we get angry at each other. He's angry at sin because it hurts us, because he's our father. And so, what, moving towards the New Testament and into the revelation of Jesus Christ, it was like too much for anyone to imagine that not only is God slow to anger 
And if we ask nicely, he'll forgive us for, for messing up. But he actually goes after the one lost sheep. He'll leave the 99 to go rescue the one lost sheep and carry him back on his shoulders, back home. That God is like the prodigal father who, whose son took half his stuff and walked out and spent it on prostitutes, wasted it all, made a disgrace of his father's name. And as soon as he starts walking back, his father runs out. This is the story of the prodigal son. What Jesus is trying to reveal to us through his teaching and then through his life and finally his cross is this is God's love for us. That he not only will accept us back if we come to him humbly, but he'll pursue us in our sin. And this is God's love, St. Paul says, that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For a just man, it would be hard to die. But for a sinner, for someone who has spit in your face, to die for him, that's how much God loves us. So it's more than we could imagine. It's more than we can accept. And just as this mystery had to be gradually revealed through human history, in our own lives, it has to be revealed gradually. Like, we can't accept it all at once. And maybe you've had these moments of realizing how much God loves you and the truth of your own goodness that he sees that you often can't see or other people have maybe wounded or rejected or, or hurt you. And so it, you're reluctant to give yourself to this love. And God gradually just slowly coaxes us into this, this relationship. Um, Jesus is, is the revelation of this. If you who are wicked, he says, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And it's interesting and important that he says, gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Because he's talking about knocking on the door, persistent, asking God for what we need. But what we really need is the Holy Spirit, he's saying. What the Father will always give us is himself. What God wants to give us and what we truly want and don't know what to ask for is God himself, that love that we long for. We think we want all sorts of things. We go after other gods. But God all the time is offering us himself. I just read this article uh, this past week on the book, The Secret Garden. I'd never, I've never read the book. Now I mean to because it, it sounds like such a uh, charming little story and an allegory for, for the Christian mystery. Um, the garden, of course, is evocative of the Garden of Eden. And there's tragedy in the garden and there's a fall. And, um, but it's also the place of re-enchantment where these children kind of like learn to be children again. The children whose parents have failed them, whose parents have, in one case, the, the boy's mother died. Um, and he's like totally motherless and his father is lost in his grief. And the child like never goes outside, this little boy, never goes outside. And he becomes sort of an invalid. He like can't get out of bed. Um, and he's convinced that he's, you know, by doctors and stuff, that he's a sickly little kid and he can't really handle things. And slowly but surely through the book, he's, he's um, led into the garden led outside into the wilderness, into the, into the beauty of the created world, and he falls in love with things, flowers and birds and friends. And there's these people in the story who, who take interest in him, as well as this little girl. And um, they, the children are just like, before this redemption, are totally lost in their own sorrow and their own greed. They're children, but they don't have any of the wonder or the, the openness of children. They're just like little spoiled tyrants. And um, these adults who actually love them and take, them, take interest in them, bring them out into reality, into how big it is and how beautiful it is. And they start to like love one another and, and be happy and joyful and pursue beauty and creative 
uh, endeavors. But there's this mother figure in the background the whole time that they don't know about, but they hear about, who is the mother of the, the groundskeepers who are kind of helping them come alive and how kind she is and how loving she is and how beautiful she is. And um, they, they always want to meet her. And finally, at the end of the story, she comes into the story, Susan. And, and the little boy um, just like puts himself in her, in her arms, into her garments. And her garments are blue, which is symbolic of, of the Blessed Mother. And he just looks up at her, this old lady, and he goes, you're what I always wanted. I wish you were my mother. There's something about a little boy saying to an old lady, you're what I always wanted, that's so striking. Because, like, when I was a kid, what I always wanted was a Sega Genesis, which was a video game at the time. Um, Like, what you want for Christmas, a bike, a, a, a whatever... It's like some possession, something you can grasp and have, not something you can be held by, someone who loves you. But this boy who had lacked it, lacked this unconditional love, knew that whatever he thought he wanted, what he was stomping around having tantrums or or just feeling sorry for himself laying in bed, what he always wanted was to just be loved, to have this overwhelming love, take interest in him, to be personal, to be intense and focused um, so that he could throw himself in in her arms. Um, this is what Jesus is, that the, the object of his preaching throughout the Gospels is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the Father's house, the place where we're home, where we're loved, where we belong. And we don't have to worry about possessions and grasping and getting what we want and what we need. It's just everything I have belongs to you. The goodness of God that's so overwhelming, it's like too much to handle. That's what he's always gradually trying to initiate us into so that we can um, receive it and be received by it. And that's the Mass. That's the Eucharist. It's, this is home. Um, it's, a, it's a taste of home, but it's also home. Um, this place where we receive the Lord and are received by him.